Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. It's good to have you all with us. We are on every Sunday morning from 7 to 10. We are talking about health, healing, and healthy lifestyles with the experts. Give them a chance to talk about something they're passionate about or about their work in general. We always touch on holistic health, talking about integrative health, talking about Western medicine and natural medicine. And we give the experts a chance to discuss with us what they love to talk about, what they do with a passion. We always talk about health of the spirit the mind and the body and we hope that we can give you a little piece of the puzzle today in your quest for better health today we kind of have an interesting program because we're going to split it up in two in the first hour and a half we are going to talk with dr Aaron Katz. He is a medical doctor. He wrote a wonderful book. It's called Dr. Katz's Guide to Prostate Health from Conventional to Holistic Therapies. How to Prevent and Treat Prostate Disease with the Latest Breakthroughs from Traditional and Alternative Medicine. Let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Katz. Dr. Katz is Director of the Center for Holistic Urology at Columbia University Medical Center and an Associate Professor of Clinical Urology at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. His pioneering work in advancing the technology of cryosurgery to treat prostate cancer helped Medicare approve the therapy for treating radiation recurrent tumors. Dr. Katz has trained nearly 100 urologists in the United States and Europe to perform cryosurgery in their hospitals. During a fellowship at the New York Academy of Medicine, Dr. Katz developed a novel test that could detect small numbers of prostate cancer cells in the blood. Known as RT-PCR, which stands for Reverse Transcriptase Polymerase Chain Reaction, it was the first to stage urologic cancer using a molecular assay. He has received several grants to further his research. Dr. Aaron Katz has published over 50 scientific articles in peer-reviewed journals and has written for urological textbooks. In addition, he has lectured throughout the United States, Europe, and Japan. Now, you can find out more about Dr. Aaron Katz when you go to his website, which is Holistic Urology, with an H, HolisticUrology.com. HolisticUrology.com. You can also email him at AEK4, the number four, at Columbia.edu. AEK4 at Columbia.edu. It is great to have Dr. Katz with us today. The question I asked him, first of all, was about cryosurgery because it was mentioned a couple times in the introduction. And I asked him, what is cryosurgery? After I first talked to him about the prevalence of prostate-related problems amongst men in this country and the fact that so many men are dying, over 35,000 are dying every year of prostate cancer. Over 200,000 people are dealing with men are dealing with prostate problems every year in this country. So it is definitely prevalent. Too many people are dying. And so he acknowledged that. Then I asked him about cryosurgery. And I'm going to read a little bit out of the book, which is called Dr. Katz's Guide to Prostate Health. It says, cryotherapy 
cryoablation. Basically, what we do with cryosurgery is freeze cancer cells to death immediately and with pinpoint accuracy. We use ultrasound to guide the placement of several probes or cryo needles into the prostate and use ergon gas to rapidly cool cancerous areas. After the tissue is frozen, helium gas is run through the same needles to thaw the tissue. Targeted cryoablation, cryoablation of the prostate is a promising, minimally invasive therapy for localized prostate cancer. In seven to eight year studies, it has an 89 to 92% success rate as a primary treatment for localized or locally advanced disease, T1 to T3. I have also used cryosurgery to treat patients who have a recurrence when radiation has failed. I have had excellent long-term results with these patients. 97% of them survived for at least 10 years after the procedure. In men treated with radiation therapy, 38% eventually have a positive biopsy, which is recurrence, while only 12% of men who received cryotherapy have a positive biopsy after treatment. For men whose cancers are likely to have grown just beyond the prostate, or those who have aggressive, which we call Gleason score, at or above 7, so who have aggressive tumors, this procedure is very effective. It is also a good alternative for men who cannot have surgery or radiation, or don't want to have either of these therapies. The FDA has approved it and Medicare covers it. In my experience, for patients who fail radiation therapy, the advantages of cryosurgery over radical prostatectomy are outstanding. Modern-day cryosurgery is performed in the hospital under either general or spinal epidural anesthesia. Before your, before your procedure, you may be advised to take drugs to block the action of hormones on your prostate to help shrink the gland. Most procedures are done in an hour and a half or less. We use ultrasound to guide the placement of thin cryoneedles through the perineum, which is located under the scrotum. In two or more freeze-thaw cycles, we freeze cancer cells to death, protecting healthy tissues from damage with thermocouples and a urethral warming device. You can go home the same day or the next day if all goes well. For a week following, you'll need to use a urethral catheter which will drain into a bag worn on one thigh. In order to ensure the destruction of all cancer cells, we freeze tissue beyond the prostate and this can affect nerve bundles associated with erection. These nerves can regenerate, however, and potency may return, depending upon potency prior to cryotherapy. A recent study found that at three years following cryosurgery, patients' self-reported quality of life was not worse than for men treated with radiotherapy, radical prostatectomy, brachytherapy, or watchful waiting. The cryotherapy patients were more likely to have erectile dysfunction, but this improved with the passage of time and with medical help. Nerve-sparing techniques are being developed and the technology continues to improve. Patients who undergo cryotherapy may also have incontinence, although with modern-day technology, this is very rare, even in patients that have failed previous radiation therapy. There may also be a period of time around six weeks where there is some blood in the urine. Mild urinary urgency and scrotal swelling may also occur, but will resolve in a few weeks' time. Most men recover normal bowel and bladder function. 
At this point, we started talking with Dr. Katz. I started talking to Dr. Katz about radiation. He talked a little bit about why radiation uh, worked and did not work at times. So as we continue with the program, you will now hear Dr. Katz speak. Effective, if not more effective than radiation. It doesn't have as many long-term side effects as radiation. Um, although radiation can also be effective, um, but there are many patients that I see in my practice that don't want to be radiated, uh, that have a fear of radiation, or um, some of the patients that I treat with cryosurgery have already been radiated, and the cancer returns. And so you can't have more radiation once you've been radiated in that area because you can develop rectal problems. So, does um, does does, does um, prostate surgery or prostate cancer ever deal with chemo or primarily radiation? Well, when we talk about prostate cancer, let's break it down into the types of cancer in terms of whether it's localized or early stage, right. or whether it's advanced and. When we're talking about early stage prostate cancer, and as I mentioned, the screening test using the PSA and the rectal exam has significantly changed the type of prostate cancer that we're seeing now with the screening test as compared to 15 years ago when we didn't have the screening test. Yeah. In that the majority of cases, now not all of the cases, but the majority of cases with the screening tests are being detected at early stage. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I was training as a resident in the hospital in the 1980s, and if somebody came in with prostate cancer, they would come in because they had back pain or bone pain or hip pain because the cancer had already spread to these areas. Yes. We rarely see that nowadays as a first presentation. Because of the screening, most of the men that are diagnosed have very early stage prostate cancer, and the majority of men that are diagnosed have no symptoms at all. As a matter of fact, every week when I see the patients and they come in and have been diagnosed, they say, you know, Dr. Katz, I don't understand this. I have cancer, yet I feel fine. Mm. I, I, you know, don't have any symptoms at all. Yeah. So you know, that is true. There is a, and, and then they do the test, and then one, the, the, the BPH and the PSA, uh, those are two things that people need to look at, and they're not always indicative of actual cancer. That's right. So, so going back to your question about, you know, does ke is chemotherapy, um, is, is that in the, the treatment algorithm for prostate cancer? For localized cancer, as many of these patients are, as I was mentioning, there are basically three main options that men can choose from. One would be surgical removal of the prostate, which we still do, and I do quite a bit at Columbia University. And right now, the way that we're doing these removals is with the aid of a robot. Uh, we do a lot of robotic surgery. Huh. This has been a, uh, a major advance uh, in the way that we're able to uh, remove the prostate because we no longer have to make a big incision in the patient. The robotic arms go actually through very tiny little holes that we put around the belly button, uh -huh. and the robot aids the surgeon in removing the gland very effectively and very precisely. Huh. The other, and we can talk more about that, yeah. uh, the other um, main treatment for men with localized prostate cancer, as we mentioned, is either radiation, which can be delivered in one of two ways. It can be done with a seed implant or seed pellets, and that was how Mayor Giuliani was treated. Yes. Or it can be done with external beam radiation. 
but both of these are um, forms of radiation, or it can be done in combination, the seeds plus the external beam. Then there's the cryosurgery that I mentioned. Yeah. And then the other type of uh, treatment that uh, is not really treatment at all, but is a holistic approach, and one that we can discuss further in this show, which I'm excited about, yeah. which is, was coined watchful waiting in the past, for patients that had localized prostate cancer but didn't want to necessarily go through surgery or radiation. And because we're detecting so many of these cases that are early, the question comes about, if you do have an early cancer, does that cancer need to be treated and does it need to be treated right away? Hmm. Or can we in fact give a patient some holistic methods, change his diet, add some supplements and nutrition, and watch this cancer. And instead of just doing nothing, yeah. we're actually taking an, an, appro an active approach, an active surveillance, if you will, yeah. or a holistic approach, and one that I feel is very favorable for patients because it can put the cancers in remission, it doesn't have any side effects, and if it doesn't work out, and the cancer is continuing to grow, and it, as long as it's localized, those patients down the line can still be candidates for surgery or radiation or, or cryosurgery. So mm. um, I think that that's a, this is a very novel and, and interesting way of dealing with cancer, um, and one that um, I think will take a more active role, because we are detecting so many of these cancers so early, so small, and Yes, we've made great improvements in our surgical and radiation techniques, but despite those improvements, they still have side effects. Mm -hmm. You know, they still can be associated with sexual side effects. Uh -huh. They can still leave men impotent. They can still leave men incontinent. Yeah. Um, and with any medical treatment, you always have to weigh the risk and the benefit. Yes. And with all of these treatments that our allopathic medicine has and with all the medications and the surgical approaches, there's, there is a benefit. There may be a benefit, um, but you also have to be very informed about the potential risks. Yes. Is it and so even, with the, <clears throat> even with the watchful waiting or the holistic approach, there is the benefit that it will improve your, your overall health, you'll improve your immune system, um, You'll improve, and possibly you'll, you'll lose weight. Those are all, and, and maybe it'll slow the cancer down. Those are all benefits. But the risk is that, well, while we're waiting, there maybe is a small risk that the cancer uh, could grow and could spread. Hmm. So I think we need to help educate men and their spouses about about all these potential risks and benefits. About kind of the overall approach. Now, Dr. Katz, so you are a holistic uro urologist and you, you have trained already quite a few uh, other urologists into the holistic approach, but how common is the holistic approach at this point? And the other thing I question I have is how did you get involved in the holistic approach of uh, urology? Well, um, I, I don't necessarily label myself as a holistic urologist. I okay. would like to think of myself more as an integrative doctor. Yes. Using both complementary therapies and allopathic or traditional therapies. Yes. Because I, I do a fair number of, of surgical procedures at the hospital as well when I feel that it's indicated. How I became involved in this 
was basically by listening to my patients. Um, oh. And I go through this in my book um, that, that I just wrote, um, Dr. Katz's Guide to Prostate Health. Mm-hmm. And I discuss in the introduction how I became aware of the powers of some of these things by basically listening to my patients when they were coming into my office and into my practice saying that they were on specific herbs and vitamins and nutrients and that they were able to lower their PSA level. Mm-hmm. Now, there have been a lot of controversies about PSA and its utility for screening, but once you have cancer that's been diagnosed, the PSA test can be very powerful in determining how fast your cancer is growing. And if you can slow down the time that it takes for your PSA to double, or look at PSA doubling time, or look at PSA velocity, or the growth of PSA test over time, you can get a snapshot or or an idea of how aggressive your cancer is. And in the early 1990s, I was hearing about patients and seeing patients that were increasing their PSA doubling time, that were slowing down their cancers with just diet alone. So it was clear to me that this may have a role um, and this should be studied. And, you know, a lot of the doctors have just, you know, turned their back, if you will, on these therapies because they haven't been trained yeah. uh, in, in nutrition. They don't know the powers of herbs and plants and they would rather not deal with it. They would rather just, you know, offer things to patients that they feel comfortable with, that they've trained and that they've seen studies. Yeah. But now what we're seeing is that more and more studies are coming out about the powers of many of these compounds. We're now doing clinical trials Right now, I'm running six clinical trials at Columbia University on, uh-huh. on botanical medicines um, and using the strict scientific uh, rigorous criteria that a pharmaceutical company would use, such as a randomization procedure, such as a placebo-controlled trial, um, and having a set protocol and publishing my results in top peer-reviewed journals, getting the message out that, yes, we can apply science. Yeah to these herbal compounds, we can discover the mechanisms of action of how they work. Some of them really do work, and this is how they work. They interfere with cell cycle growth. They stop cells from growing. They can kill cancer cells. Yes. Um, and so um, it, it's becoming very exciting for me because, um, you know, having been doing this now for eight to ten years, I think that the, um, the medical community is starting to grow. Uh, great amount of interest in this area. As a matter of fact, uh, our governing body in urology is called the American Urological Association, and there has now been a committee set up, one that I sit on this committee, called the Committee for Alternative and Complementary Medicine at the AUA. I mean, this is the first yeah. time yeah. ever that a you know conservative organization like the AUA is actually addressing um, the, the issues of complementary medicine, um, and we're now seeing more posters and abstracts at scientific meetings. So wow, that's it exciting. really seems to be um, growing at, at quite a fast rate. And I think also that uh, the, obviously the whole field of prostate health is, is something that men seem to want to forget. They don't want to deal with it. It seems that they're more looking at their wives who say there is a lump, I might have breast cancer or I want to have it checked. Men are not so quickly in checking their prostate and uh, they have a tendency, I would say, uh, to, to look at, the, to, to, to ignore the symptoms 
uh, such as lower back pain and and lower sexual function and and part impotence and also the the, the problem with the urine flow uh, is that is that right what, what I'm saying I mean do you see that also uh, that that people are kind of hesitant men are kind of hesitant to come and see you Oh, well, you're absolutely right on. Um, you know, and I go through this in the book quite a bit about the symptoms that men can present with uh, when they're having, you know, signs of prostate enlargement or even, you know, late stages of prostate cancer. And the, the idea or the notion that men don't see a physician early enough, I think, is, is very true. Um, and it can be true across um, as well as looking at different um, racial backgrounds. Mm-hmm. It's always been thought at least in the literature, that African-American men have a higher rate of prostate cancer than, Ameri- than Caucasian men that are age-matched. And it could be, that might be the case, we don't know, there might be some genetic variations going on in African-American men, but it might also be that perhaps African-American men don't go to the physician as quickly or as early on as their age-matched Caucasian men. Right. Um, and so maybe they have the same um, rate of prostate cancer, but it may be just that they're detecting it later because they're not going to the doctor early enough. And this is just a proposed theory. It's not known, but this is one of the things that we're looking at. But All I right. think overall, I think you're right that women are more accustomed to seeing physicians much earlier on in life, even as teenagers, because they're seeing gynecologists, because they're concerned about birth control. Yeah. Um, Dr. Katz, we're going to have to take a short break here for the news. If you don't mind, we're going to put you on hold here. We will be right back. Stay tuned. We have a caller on hold who would like to talk to Dr. Katz. Caller, good morning to you. Your name, how can we help you? Well, this is older version of Daniel R. Peterson. Hey, Daniel. How are you? Yeah. Well, I must be getting older because that last music sounded like you were scratching fingernail over a chalkboard. <laughs> but here's a question about us older guys. Uh, I'm 61. As I recall, the University of California wellness letter was rather cool about elaborate PSA screenings. It may pick up potential cancerous spots at early stages, but they're saying the typical doctor now might say, wait and see, especially with older men, they may have reached a steady stage of, on these growths and it'd be more damaging to radiate and cut than it would be to just let nature stay its course. An old man would probably die long before uh, these early cancer spots could take hold. Huh. Now, even you say there's a small risk that these cancer spots will uh, take hold. And since Montana is one of the poorest states in the union, I'd be very reluctant to have any elaborate screenings. So you've you've mentioned that typically there are lifestyle changes that we could take to to keep our prostate healthy. What what are these herbs and lifestyle changes? Well, uh, thanks for your call. You bring up a couple of uh, interesting points and ones that um, I tried to um, elaborate on in the first half hour of the show, which is because we're detecting so many of these cancers early with a screening, are we detecting cancers that in fact do not need treatment at all? Um, And this is a a major uh, controversy right now that's going on in a debate that's going on in the urological literature and the community at large, because as of right now, we are detecting so many cancers, but we have not seen the dramatic 
decrease in death rate. I mean, when you talk about a screening test, what's the point of having a screening test if you're not making an impact on the disease? You may be detecting all these cancers, but what's the point? You know, if we're not seeing a decrease in the death rate, if we can just see that we're detecting them early, are we going to be over-treating this disease? And in fact, I think that we are right now, and so I agree with you. Mm. And I think that there probably should be some cutoff of when we should stop screening, huh. especially for older men, because as you point out, many men that are diagnosed with prostate cancer in their late 70s or 80s are probably, even though they have cancer, they may, be, they may go ahead and just die of something else, and the treatment like radiation and surgery, which can be expensive, which can have side effects, may not be giving any added benefit to that particular patient. Right. But on the other hand, I think that to put our heads in the sand and not to screen the younger patients, I think would be a mistake because we are still seeing men that are young, that are healthy, that have many years to live, that are being diagnosed with prostate cancer, that may have aggressive cancers um, and may need treatment early on so that it w the treatment although it may be associated with some, some side effects, that treatment would add life to that patient. Um, and that's where the debate comes up. But I think screening younger men, um, I, I'm still uh, very much in favor of it. Hmm. All right, now don't forget to mention lifestyle changes. I'm going to get off this cellular phone because yeah, that has controversy too with it. <laughs> now, uh, with, with the lifestyle changes, uh, the things that I recommend for my patients that... Um, are considering um, not going on to any uh, traditional treatments, allopathic treatments like surgery or radiation, but just want to do something that they can, in fact, slow the rate of this cancer down uh, and block it from developing a metastasis to the bone. I think the things in the literature right now that are clear that we could add to our diet are vitamins such as selenium. Yeah. Uh, lycopene, yeah. which are the tomato extracts, uh -huh. uh, showing a profound effect on prostate growth. Vitamin E, although we have to be careful about vitamin E in large doses because of the recent studies that are showing that doses above 400 might actually be harmful and cause bleeding. So we want to lower it down to probably around 200 uh, international units per day. Hmm. The other things in the diet are uh, lowering the fat content in the diet. And this will have benefits not only for the prostate, but also for the other major killer for men, which is cardiovascular disease. Yeah. And we know if we can lower our cholesterol level, lower our fat in the diet, um, increase our aerobic exercise, that these will have effects not only on the cancer, but on the heart. Hmm. And if we can take in more soy in the diet, and exchange soy for other foods that will lower our fat content and the components within soy uh, the active components like genistine uh, has been shown in multiple papers in the literature and laboratory studies and epidemiological studies that men that consume more soy have a much lower incidence and death rate from prostate cancer because of the active metabolites genistine which directly can kill uh, prostate cells. We're running a very interesting study right now on a compound from Sapporo, Japan, um, which um, 
is a fermented soy and mushroom compound, which can improve the immune system and fight cancer. Right. So those are the things in the diet. The other supplement that we are uh, discovering to be very powerful is a compound uh, that is sold over the counter called Zyflamend. Yeah. Zyflamend is a um, nutritional supplement that contains 10 different herbs within it. It's made by a company called New Chapter in Brattleboro, Vermont. And the ingredients within the Zyflamend these uh, have each individual herb, and there's 10 of them, have potent anti-inflammatory um, components. And you say, well, what's good about anti-inflammatory? How does that relate to prostate cancer? And in fact, what we're finding is that inflammation in the gland, and not only in the prostate gland, but also in breast, thyroid, and colon, inflammation is linked to cancer development. And if we can block the inflammation, we can block cancer. And we're, we have stumbled on a very interesting compound, Zyflamend, which is an herbal anti-inflammatory, and we're finding that it can have a, a wonderful effect on men in preventing prostate cancer. We're running an, a true clinical trial, and although we don't have the results yet, because we're not done with the trial, the early results are extremely encouraging. Now, the uh, Dr. Dr. Katz, um, Zyflamend and New Chapter, uh, um, New Chapter, I understand, works indeed with uh, partial fermentation. They use a fermentation process to, uh, to make the products actually better absorbable. And that is interesting that you bring that up because uh, when you all talk about soy and you talk about fermented soy, um, I am a fan of fermented soy. I'm not that much a fan from the literature that I've been reading that soy in abundance would be good for you because there are too many other issues that are uh, that, that that mess with the hormones. But the but the uh, the, the uh, my my literature shows me and the people that I've talked to that uh, that the fermented soy like the tempeh and the miso and the soy sauce are pretty good to eat uh, and to consume. Uh, is that something that you agree with or you say soy in general, soy beans, soy nuts, soy cheese, soy ice cream, soy protein, all that stuff, soy milk, uh, take plenty of it? Well, I, I agree wholeheartedly and I, and I agree because I've seen the benefits myself uh, clinically in my patients. We've studied this component uh, in the laboratory. We're just about to publish our paper in, uh, in a very top uh, cancer journal. There have been other papers showing the uh, wonderful benefits of fermented soy. Yeah. And if you look geographically around the world, where do you see the lowest incidence of prostate cancer? You see it in Japan. You see it in Asian countries where the soy consumption is about 40 times fold the soy consumption of the Western man. And you can measure not only uh, what they're taking in, but you can also measure their soy in their blood and in their urine by looking at the genistein levels, the isoflavone levels in their blood and urine. And studies have looked at this, and the levels that they achieve, the isoflavone levels from the soy that Asian men achieve in their urine and their blood is 40 times higher than that of the uh, Western man. Hmm. Uh, so um, I think that uh, this is not a coincidence. Uh, the death rate in Japanese men is extremely low from prostate cancer. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, 
when the Asian men immigrate to the United States, and studies have looked at this in Hawaiian men, we see that the rates of prostate cancer when they come over here is about the same as the American male, and it's probably because they're changing their diet. Hmm. They're westernizing their diet when they come over here to the United States. They're eating the McDonald's, the Wendy's, and the cheeseburgers, yes. and all the fat in their diet is going up, and their prostate cancer incidence is also almost reaching that uh, of the American male. Dr. Katz, we we uh, we are talking here about uh, fats. If I don't mind, if you don't mind me, bring up fats. I do want to talk to you about that. I also know that you want to explain a little bit more about the PSAs and the BPH and also the PIN conundrum. Uh, maybe we should jump on that for now and then go back to solutions. Okay. Well, uh, you just thrown a lot there at me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, well. Well, there's uh, a certain there are certain uh, understandings when men have a test done by uh, by a urologist, a yep. prostate exam. Uh, they hear things like PSA and uh, yep. they hear things like BPH and and uh, I yeah, think well, let, let, let's, it's confusing. Let, let's talk. Yeah. Let's go back to the PSA issue because you know in my experience in dealing with this every day. Uh, although the PSA stands for prostate-specific antigen, for many patients, it can mean patient-stimulated anxiety. <laughs> uh, yes. And uh, it can be a very anxious time when patients are calling and to find out their PSA results. So um, in terms of the PSA, I mentioned it's a screening test, and if you're listening, you say, well, when should I get this test? Um, the American Urological Association and the American Cancer Society both recommend a yearly PSA and a rectal exam starting at the age of 50. Um, although if you are African American or if you have a family history of prostate cancer, if this is a disease that runs in your family, if your, your father has it, you've had two brothers that have had it, you should be screened at the age of 40. Um, and if your test is okay then, maybe at 45 and then once again at 50. Yeah. How do you know what a normal PSA is? I mean, what's normal? Well, frankly, there is no normal anymore. We look at PSA in terms of its relation to your age. Mm -hmm. And we know that if you are a specific age, what your PSA range should be. For example, if you're under 40, your PSA should be less than 1. Mm -hmm. If you're between 40 and 50, your PSA should be less than 2.5. Fifty to sixty, it should be less than it should be zero to three point five, and sixty to seventy, zero to four point five. So that kind of gives you a a ballpark of where you should be in relationship to your PSA yeah. and your age. Now there are other conditions that will raise your PSA beyond prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. This is not a cancer-specific test, just because it's elevated or higher than your age-related PSA doesn't mean that you have cancer. Now, you may have a growth of the prostate that is a benign growth, and we know that as men age, their prostate will grow. Men gain certain things and they lose certain things. They gain a prostate and they may lose hair, right. but, and this is all hormone-regulated. Um, and as the prostate grows, it can produce more PSA, mm -hmm. okay? Yes. As the prostate grows, it sits underneath your bladder and it can give you more urinary tract symptoms. It can make you go to the bathroom more frequently because you're not emptying your bladder uh -huh. as, as well as you should be. 
If your prostate grows, you might have a slower urinary stream. You might have a, take you a longer time to uh, expel all of your urine. You might be standing at the urinal for a while until it finally comes out. And then when it does, it just dribbles. These are all the things that I, I discuss uh, in my book. Yeah. Uh, and so um, those, that condition, an enlarged prostate, is something that can elevate your PSA. Yeah. One of the other things that I see quite commonly that can make your PSA go up is if you have these symptoms because you have a urinary tract infection. Mm -hmm. And if you're starting to have burning when you urinate, if you're having some blood in the urine, you may have a urinary tract infection. And the way to diagnose that is just have, give your urine sample to your doctor and he can run it to the laboratory and find out if there are bacteria in your urine. And if there are, that can raise your PSA. So those are the things that you should be concerned about. Other things that can raise your PSA, sexual relations. If you've had sex within the last 24 to 48 hours before a test, that can raise your PSA as well. Uh -huh. So um, just because you have a high PSA, I know that it may make you anxious and you might think you have cancer, but in fact, it may not be cancer. And the first thing that I do is run the urine test, make sure there's no infection, um, and then repeat the PSA. Maybe there was a laboratory error. Uh, and so, or maybe you were under stress that day. Stress can do it as well, believe it or not. Yeah. Stress, or if you've had a recent illness, a viral illness. I've seen many patients that have come down with a cough, a cold, a flu. Those things, believe it or not, although they're not well studied in the literature, in my own experience, they can raise PSA. So I don't quickly go to the next step, which is a biopsy, um, until I've repeated the PSA and confirmed that it is elevated. I and see. if it is, then I would take the next step, uh, which I do quite commonly in my practice at Columbia University, which is to go ahead and do a prostate biopsy under um, an ultrasound machine. So the ultrasound uh, is a probe that goes uh, into the rectum. We can see the prostate with the ultrasound, and the ultrasound is used to guide us to where to place the needles in the prostate so that we can sample the prostate adequately to determine whether or not there is cancer or not. Yeah. And um, the sampling um, has been well studied uh, in the uro urologic literature as to how many samples we should take. And in the past, we would take six cores or six samples. Now we find out that that's not enough, and we need to take around 12 samples. Okay. All Is right. That well, that's music that. in the background? Yeah, okay. a little music in the background. We're going to be right back with Dr. Katz, so stay tuned, and we'll talk to you soon. Dr. Katz, uh, thank you for being with us an extra half hour. We know you have, you have a very busy day today, and uh, we appreciate you hanging around for an extra half hour. So, um, um, Sure. Thank you very much for your kind comments as well. I, I greatly appreciate that. Oh, you, you deserve it. I think uh, that um, it shows in the book that you really have integrated it. It is not just that you study it, but you, you really love it. And uh, that's what I read out of the words. And uh, you, 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 you know how men feel when they have certain exams to go through and you kind of said, I know how you will cringe, I know how you will feel, uh, and I like that style, uh, that you make it very personable in your book, and I think a lot of people would appreciate uh, your approach. 
Yes, well, I think a lot of the men that come to me are nervous because, you know, we're dealing with a, a delicate area down there, you know, yes. uh, where the prostate is uh, situated, you know, near the penis, near the, you know, and men are fearful about their sex lives and, um, and so, and, and whether or not it, the things that I would do to them would, would cause pain. And, um, and so I hope by writing this book, I'll try to help educate men that the things that we do um, it can be very helpful to them and, and don't have to be, um, you know, associated with those, those concerns. Right. Um, Dr. Katz, the, the BPH, uh, benign prostate hypoplasia, is, is another word that uh, we hear about, but what exactly does it mean and how do you go about this? Well, um, what it means is uh, that the prostate can grow. Uh, as we were talking about earlier, um, the prostate can grow in one of two ways. It can be either a, in a benign fashion, which is called a BPH, or it can grow in cancer form. Um, if it's in a benign fashion and the prostate just grows in size, it can push on the bladder um, and cause men to get up to urinate at night and have them have a slower stream and not emptying their bladder. And although this may not affect, like cancer, their their whole duration of their life, it's not going to cause them to die mm-hmm. uh, like cancer could, because uh, we do see that 35,000 men still die in this country each year with, from prostate cancer. Yeah. We're talking about more of a quality of life issue, you know, that they're now, you know, getting up at night a few times, they're not as energetic during the day, they, have, they can't go to a movie because they have to be concerned about urinating, um, and they, have, they can't go out to dinner, um, and it, it affects them, and it affects the person that they're in a relationship with, their spouse as well. Yeah. So this can be a real... Uh, quality of life uh, issue for, but, for but many men. Isn't it so that when the bladder is not empty completely and the urine is in there, depending on the acidity level of the urine, it can actually cause an inflama- in inflammation in the bladder and, and in, cause an infection? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the number one reason that men in this age group, we're talking 50 and above, get urinary tract infections is because they're not emptying their bladder and the bladder lining does become inflamed the bladder can actually stretch out uh... the bladder can become very distended uh... you can lose the activity of the bladder you can become a bladder cripple if wow. you will yeah, uh, yeah. we've had men that have that's happened to and uh, now they have to uh... have a life of a catheter because they their bladder no longer functions Yeah. Wow, that is, yeah, you only have one bladder. <laughs> you only have one bladder. And That's right. And you've got to take care of it. And not only the bladder, but if the urine is building up and backing up into the bladder, it can also be backing up uh, into, um, into the kidneys. And um, recently I saw a patient, as a matter of fact, this week, who had, he came in because his belly was distended, and he didn't know, he thought he was just gaining weight. In fact, it was his bladder that was over-distended, and when I did blood tests on him to check his kidneys, he was in kidney failure huh. because the urine now is backing up all the way up into his kidneys, um, and um, he's in trouble. I mean, he may need uh, dialysis. Wow. Yeah, it's 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 a very serious situation. Now, in the first uh, in the, in, the, in this last half hour with the telephone call, uh, we were talking about uh, the. Um 
the different uh, possible treatments and changing lifestyles. But you mentioned it would be good for younger men to start at an earlier age, at least, and instead of waiting till 55, 60 with a prostate exam. Is that also because we see an increase in obesity and diabetes and, and uh, in, in the younger people already today and therefore also in the 20s and 30s and uh, age group? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, we, we are seeing those diseases in younger men as well. Um, and I can't, you know, encourage men enough out there that if you are starting to have, you know, some of these symptoms that we're talking about, not to wait. Um, you know, it's all about prevention in medicine. And as you said, God only gave us one bladder and two kidneys. Um, and if you're starting to have these signs and symptoms, don't, you know, don't be Mr. Macho and, and try to say, well, you know, it, it's nothing. Uh, it might be just as simple as a urinary infection, yeah. but it may be something else underlying that's serious. So um, you really need to go into the doctor and, and be evaluated. Mm. The uh, somebody uh, the treatments of the no, I shouldn't say well I can say treatments uh, some of the natural treatments that are out there. Um, obviously, the use of antioxidants would be uh, probably on top of the list to fight oxidative stress. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what we're seeing with oxidative stress is, and, and this is a process that goes on because of the things that we're taking in in our diet, things like fats in our diet, uh, things that we're exposed to um, in the environment, like smoke, can cause um, oxidation yeah. uh, and can uh, cause problems uh, with our DNA. And this is how we have DNA mutations. Um, and so, you know, if we can incorporate things in our diet like antioxidants, um, we may be able to block uh, these uh, terrible oxidizing uh, compounds yeah. and prevent uh, things like cancer, cardiac disease, Alzheimer's. Many of these things are linked to um, oxidation. Mm -hmm. And the other day, by the way, uh, you mentioned earlier uh, uh, aerobic exercise is really good. We were talking the other day, other week, to a doctor who mentioned that uh, the uh, the aerobic exercise, when you do aerobic exercise, it is extremely important to take quite a bit of antioxidants before and after your workout because of the release of ox uh, oxidation, the oxidation in your body while you're doing uh, long-term aerobic exercises. It's very different than doing weight lifting weights. Uh, aerobic exercise really would benefit the body. Uh, it would benefit the body if you were to take antioxidants right after your workout because of what is going on inside your body with oxidation. Well, that's fascinating. I, I didn't yeah. know that. And yeah. I do quite a bit of aerobic exercise, and uh, I'll start to change that and incorporate that into my diet. I, I was not aware of those. Yeah, problems. the uh, the information is that people with uh, uh, quite a few people with hormone-related cancers actually they discovered that uh, that they were also into high. Uh, let, me, let me say it this way: <laughs> people that do aerobic exercises have a higher rate of cancer than people who do weightlifting. And that's because of the oxidation. Oxidation and not using antioxidants uh, before and after your workout. Like vitamin C, vitamin E, selenium, as you mentioned earlier. Um, uh, certain fruits that are high in antioxidants like pomegranate. And I know you're a fan of pomegranate also. 
Yes, well, we are doing a study on pomegranate juice, uh, looking at the juice and the extract. Um, there have been studies looking at its antioxidant effect, um, its ability to um, kill prostate cancer cells. And uh, we have a study that's just started for men that have already been diagnosed with cancer, that have already been treated and are having a PSA recurrence, um, and that's very um, concerning to us. And the men get a pomegranate juice extract um, to see if they can slow down the, uh, the PSA. Hmm. And, uh, folks, there are so many antioxidants available these days. It, is, it should be very easy to, to get those. As I mentioned, vitamin C, Dr. Katz mentions pomegranate. There are some wonderful sugar-free pomegranate juice available that are concentrates. Uh, goji berries have, have gained popularity. The lycopene, yes. as you mentioned, yes. Uh, yes. in tomatoes. Uh, yes. uh, chlorophyll is always very good. Uh, selenium, the grape seed extract. There are quite a few yes. antioxidants available these days days to uh, to utilize now the uh, um, the fish oils you mentioned do a diet low in fat but fish oils would be one of those fats that would be very healthy for us Is that correct yes I think so I mean there is a lot of data you know and you probably are well aware of this um, about the omega-3s um, and and the fish oils uh, from Scandinavian uh, countries yeah. Um, and to me, uh, that data is pretty clear uh, that the fish oils can be very helpful for a number of conditions. Yes. What, are, are, you, are you in agreement with that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the only thing is what I heard is that uh, the DHA part of the fish oil uh, seems to be very good for the prostate, more important than the EPA. So I would suggest to people to try a fish oil higher in the DHA. Uh, than the EPA. EPA is more for heart health and joint health. Uh, but the DHA is, I understand, is a very similar fat that we also find in the prostate and also in women's breast tissue. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, there are things that I just am I'm not as educated. And I think, you know, um, with that, I haven't seen a lot of the data in, in terms of the prostate, I think for other conditions like heart health, there is more data than there is for, for cancer in this area, and it's an area that I want to explore more uh, and do more research on. Well, I really like in your book, as you are explaining about Omega-3, the importance of Omega-3s, and that you talk about the problem that we have in our diet with the abundance of Omega-6s through nuts and seeds and, and vegetable oils uh, that causes too much arachidonic acid. And I thought uh, you explained it very well in your book, and I, I can highly recommend people read that chapter. Um, so the arachidonic acid absolutely is, is a problem and is an inflammatory fat and uh, it can cause all kinds of problems that sometimes they're often silent until it is too late and men start having problems with the prostate. Yes, absolutely. Hmm. Um, I know we don't have much time left. Is there any other areas that you wanted to, to focus on? Well, yeah. Um, what can you uh, what can you tell us about uh, some of the, uh, the the medicine that is out there, uh, like the um, Proscar and and some of the other ones that yeah, have been out there? Yeah, let's talk about. That's a good. That's a good idea. Let's talk about that because um, there there has been some controversy with the medications. Now, you mentioned the most one of the more commonly prescribed ones, Proscar, 
the medication in that is called finasteride. And, and the idea behind Proscar is to shrink the prostate in men that have large prostates. The idea is to prevent men from having uh, urinary difficulties from this large uh, prostate uh, down the line. Yes. And um, what we've shown in the data is that if you take Proscar, and you have to take it for a long time, you can't just take it for like a couple of weeks and then expect that it's going to reduce your prostate size. You need to take it for a few years, actually. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and it'll work. It won't really start even working uh, to reduce that gland for a few months. But with reducing the size of the gland, the long-term studies, the five- and the ten-year studies, have shown that men will have less bleeding from their prostate, and they will also um, have uh, less urinary retention. Yes. Um, and that is obviously um, a major uh, it will have a major impact on men so that they won't have to have a catheter and won't have to have an operation. Right. The recent studies that were done with Proscar were looking at whether or not it, Proscar, if taken for seven years, could prevent prostate cancer. Now, Proscar is, does work through some hormone-like mechanisms, and so the question is if you shrink the prostate and you reduce the cells in the gland, can you prevent prostate cancer? Yeah. And this was a study, um, a very large study, uh, it was around 18,000 men, wow. 9,000 got the Proscar for seven years, and 9,000 got a, uh, a sugar pill, a placebo. Yeah. And everybody got a biopsy at the end. And what it showed was that there was a 25% reduction in prostate cancer in the men taking the Proscar. Yeah. That, you would think, would be great, and that was good. However... The negative part of the study was that in the men that did develop cancer on Proscar, it was a more aggressive cancer than the men that were taking um, the sugar pills. So you have to understand, as I said very early in the show, that there's a risk and a benefit, benefit for everything. Yes. So there is the benefit of reducing your cancer rate, but the risk is that if you get the cancer, you're, well, you're more likely, much more likely, to have an aggressive form of the cancer. Yes. So it wasn't a home-run study. It wasn't a perfect study. Uh, I think that the makers of, of Proscar, which is Merck Pharmaceuticals, was hoping that this would be the prostate cancer prevention pill that every male will take. Unfortunately, that message um, has not come across in the medical journals and the medical literature and, and doctors that I speak to that they're not just giving every male the Proscar uh, because of this. There is also uh, a small amount of men that can develop some sexual side effects, uh-huh. um, like uh, decrease in, in sexual drive, decrease in erections, uh, and decrease in uh, ejaculate fluid because it decreases your prostate size. Yeah. Dr. Katz, I really appreciate uh, also that you talk about lifestyle changes such as yoga, breathing, visualizations, which I think is very important. It would be good for men to have a, 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 a visual of a perfect prostate and just put that image in their mind and, and, and let the visualizations help them in, in keeping their body healthy. And I think also indeed to make that change in lifestyle because the, the, the good fats, 
the the stresses in the body uh, uh, also the the, the 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 exercise the right kind of exercise all help in in keeping the body healthy but what i also like about your approach is that you say you cannot eliminate the doctor you probably will have to go and have your exam done on a regular basis to make sure that, that whatever you're doing is indeed the right thing yeah absolutely i mean you know that's a whole other area of medicine that you know mind body therapies yoga uh, the things that we talk about in the book meditation um, one of the things that we haven't really touched on is this condition known as prostatitis or an inflammation of the prostate that was believed by urologists to be related to an infection, which, which it can be in some cases. But many of the times we find that it's not really an infection, but an inflammation in the area or a tightening of the muscles around the prostate. And we've had great results with biofeedback uh-huh. to um, focus in on these um, muscles around the gland and relax them. And our most recent study, which we've published, is on acupuncture, mm-hmm. showing the wonderful effects of acupuncture and how it can um, alleviate uh, the severe pain in this area just by uh, giving acupuncture to the area and relaxing uh, these pelvic floor muscles. So this is a condition that I think lends itself very well to uh, guided imagery, uh, yoga, meditation, uh, yeah. and something that um, I don't think we, we, we haven't spent any real time on it this morning, but can be a, a real debilitating condition, especially for young men yeah. uh, in their 30s and 40s. Um, with this uh, form of, of chronic prostatitis. Yes, I I, I suggest that people get your book, and uh, and look Thank at you your website. Yo, you're welcome. And look at your website. It's called holisticurology.com. Holisticurology.com. You can also email Dr. Katz at a e k four at columbia.edu. The book is Dr. Katz's Guide to Prostate Health from Conventional to Holistic Therapies. Folks, I highly recommend this book. It's an easy read it's fun to read and and very personable so dr kat thank you so much all success with uh, with all your work and all your research and i hope to talk to you again i hope so too and thank you again for this wonderful morning oh you're very welcome and we'll talk to you later folks we will be right back changing gears here we are going to talk about something very different we're going to talk about something that could actually cause prostate problems and that is uh, addictions alcohol and drug addictions uh, which is a very very severe issue in this country at this point definitely also in the state of montana it is a growing problem sadly enough uh, people are getting younger and younger as they start with drugs and alcohol and uh, my guest on from 9 to 10 we had originally planned from 8:30 till 10 with Chris Prentice who wrote the book uh, The Alcoholism and Addiction Cure and he will be talking to us from 9 to 10 I saw Kerry Erickson a dear friend of mine the other day and I said Kerry maybe you want to talk to Chris about some of the work that we do over here in the Gallatin Valley so Kerry Erickson decided to come in and so we're going to talk the first half hour here of this this half hour with her she is she works for the alcohol and Drug Services of Gallatin County. Uh, she is the glue that helped uh, uh, that helped so many people in this uh, valley uh, to to get together. She passionately works as a counselor and a coordinator for the Alcohol and Drug Services of Gallatin County, where you can reach them 
at 586-5493, 586-5493. And I thought it might be a good idea to talk to Kerry a little bit and then talk about the issues we're dealing with over here in the Gallatin County as far as alcohol and drugs are concerned. And then as we bring Chris Prentice on in the next half hour, in the following half hour, we will be here from 9 to 10. We can listen to how he works with his clinic called Passages, which is in Malibu, California, and see the success, the enormous success that he has, 84 percent 85 percent success rate people not going back to the addictions so carrie it is good to have you with us good morning good morning it's been a while that you've been on i know <laughs> and i just wanted to clear something up in the bio just so i don't get Uh-oh. fired on monday <laughs> oh, okay i am the adult liaison case manager at alcohol and drug services oh, and and um so i'm also kind of the crisis person so i get a chance to see what happens with a lot of people you know i'm the person that when a phone call comes in and they're not sure what to do with it, it's like, give it to Carrie, you know. And so uh, I hear from a lot of family members who are just so desperate because they've got a family member that they're afraid of losing at any time. And with uh, alcoholism and drug addiction, you can lose them at any time. And it's, it's really hard, especially by the time... Alcoholics and or addicts are reaching for any kind of treatment, or their family is uh, willing to like come come out and ask for treatment for them. They've probably burned every bridge. They probably don't have insurance anymore. They probably don't have money anymore. Yeah. And they're calling and they're saying, "This person needs to get into treatment today. What do I do?" And yeah. I've got to be the bearer of the bad news that. You know, unless you've got insurance or money that I can't get you in today, I can wow. get some people around you to help help, you know, um, help you start going in that direction. Um, but there's no place that you're going to enter rehab today. Now, usually when uh, we see a problem, we have a tendency to say this is only the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. Is this indeed true when family uh, discovers, for example, or, or a spouse discovers that there is all of a sudden more drinking going on, that probably it's been going on for quite a while, but mm-hmm. it's been ignored yeah. or been not been been hidden very well? Yeah. Denial is a big part of the process. I mean... Um, people come by it honestly. A lot of times spouses of an alcoholic um, grew up in an alcoholic home. And mm-hmm. so they learned it early how to deny, you know, because they learned it from their parents. Maybe their dad was uh, drinking and passed out on the front lawn, hanging out of the car. And mom said, well, he's camping, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. You know, and so they, they learn it early. And so... Um, Often, somebody who grew up in that kind of home will either, even though they swear they'll they'll never drink like that person did, they may either become alcoholic themselves or they may marry that that same kind of person. Same archetype, yeah. Yeah, and so they'll um, do things like call into work for them. Uh, you know, m- my husband or wife is really sick today. They can't make it to work. And the interesting thing is, you know, in, in 12-step programs that support family members uh, who normally have a family member or a spouse, um, nine out of ten men leave their alcoholic wives. Nine out of ten women uh, stay with their alcoholic wow. husbands. Wow! Wow! So a lot of those groups are primarily women, you know, who are there uh, for help uh, in dealing with a family member who is chemically dependent. Yeah. 
So, uh, is it uh, usually when there is a chemical dependency, uh, does it also result in violence and abuse, or is it uh, is that not always the case? Well, it's not always the case, but it's it, it is can be, anyway some kind of abuse yes, anyway already because you will of the addiction. See it, uh, quite often exacerbated because of uh, alcohol and drugs, because all the inhibitions come down, and if you're if you've got anger issues that you haven't worked out. Um, you know, if if all of a sudden that guard is down, uh, somebody is, is you know, that's going to overheat. Yeah. Anyone, uh, you know, people who may not even be prone to any kind of domestic violence or something, you see them sometimes get into bar fights and different things like that, and they're more willing to jump in there when their guard is down. Yeah. But definitely in domestic violence, um, alcohol is often in there as a combination. Wow. Yeah. Now, when uh, when can we call somebody an alcoholic, so to say? I mean, not that we want to point fingers, but when do you start calling somebody an alcoholic? When they have a drink every day or when they drink every weekend and they get really drunk? When do you start calling somebody an alcoholic? Well, there's there's different kinds of alcoholics. There's functioning alcoholics. There's... Uh, there's oh, yeah, different of stages yeah. of alcoholism. There's the early stage, middle stage, and late stage. And um, so a lot of people will go, well, I don't have a problem. I've still got my job. You know, I've never done that. Uh, you know, I've never been in jail. I've never been fired. I've never had this or that happen to me. And those of us who work with alcoholics or who have um, <clears throat> dealt with alcoholism themselves will say those are the yets out there waiting to happen. You know, um, I haven't lost a job yet. I haven't gotten a DUI yet. I haven't had this happen to me yet. Because all of that is like previews of coming attractions, you know, if you keep drinking. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> one of the major uh, ways of telling whether somebody's alcoholic or not um, is whether there's a loss of control. Once they take a drink, they can't necessarily predict what's going to happen. They may be able to have one or two, or they may drink to oblivion, and they're really not sure which of those two is going to happen. Huh. Um, and toward the end stages, it's definitely not going to be the former. It's not going to be having the one or two and stopping and going home. Right. Um, you know, usually also, um, you know, we deal with a lot of people who uh, drink and drive, and it'll be interesting to see this upcoming week since we've just had St. Patrick's Day. Day. Yes, exactly. Uh, to see what our uh, DUI class is going to look like. Oh, yes. And, you know, people often will come in after one or two DUIs, and they're kind of livid about the fact that they have to... Um, you know, start coming to classes or maybe they need additional treatment and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. When they first come in, you know, it's they they look at it like a series of bad breaks and misunderstandings, you know, mm -hmm. the, you know, I got pulled over for a tail light or I got pulled over for this turn or I made a California stop or I did this or that or the snow, I slipped right through that red light. You know, and all those things may happen, but if you don't add alcohol to that equation, you know, you're just going to be meeting a cop who's probably there to get you out of a ditch and isn't yes. there to give you a DUI. And yes. normally, by the time we get a DUI, we've been drinking and driving a lot. Wow. And we may get real indignant about uh, about actually getting the DUI, but, you know, on those nights that we made it home and we didn't get one, we sure didn't go into the police department the next day and go, you know... I really should have gotten sighted last night. I was driving <laughs> yes. with one eye open, and yes. you really should have given me one. 
here I am. Yes. <laughs> you know? Wow. And so... Hope- is that indeed the same then, that people, uh, when, when they get pulled over most of the time, it is again the tip of the iceberg. Yes. It is finally they ran out of luck. Yeah. Many people say, I never drink, never drink and drive, uh-huh. and all of a sudden, it was the one time... Yes. I just had to drive one block and they uh-huh. caught me. What I read yeah. it in the paper uh, a couple months ago. Somebody yeah. said, I only went one block uh-huh. with my car and they caught me and I know I shouldn't have been drinking. Is is uh-huh. it when you, since you see so many people in this predicament, um, do you find out that indeed they had been drinking before and they finally got caught? Or do you actually find Usually, the people that have never drunk before and all of a sudden drink? You hardly ever run into somebody who it's their first time ever drinking and driving. Yeah. You know, we do call like a New Year's Eve amateur night because a lot of people are out there who aren't practiced at this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they may get their first DUI and, and it's, you know, they're, they're people who haven't uh, been drinking and driving or much but you know there's hardly anyone who hasn't drank and drove you know it's just that uh, some of us who are more prone to get a DUI or two DUIs have drank and driven more have consumed more before drinking and driving Mm -hmm. it's not just the one with dinner you know all that sort of thing and and the idea behind uh, the drinking and driving thing is to take drinking out of the equation because a lot of accidents happen at before 0.08 they yes. happen between 0.05 and 08 really yeah huh. and so why is that because it's like the just a slight you think you can really yeah. see it but in your mind it it it's almost like you're, you're very clear in certain aspects, but you're really a little slow in other, in other reaction speeds, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Your judgment goes down. Your uh, ability to uh, react to an accident, uh, to any kind of an um, you know, uh, an emergency goes down. Also, once we start to drink, we can't do two or more things well at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, all a, poli- all a policeman has to do is follow you for a little while because, you know, if you're drinking and driving, if you've only had like even a couple, and on, I don't know how, you know, I used to drink and drive in California. You know, I'm a sober person now, and I don't do that, so Bozeman doesn't have to worry. But, but <laughs> <about> uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when I was drinking and driving, it was in California with drier streets and all that. I don't know how people do it in Montana. You know, I mean, yeah. I I see snow and slippery conditions, and and it's scary enough. Or I see that bicycle rider who's wearing all black with maybe just barely a little red light, yes, you know, going yes. on at, on icy streets, and yes. I happen to see them because I'm sober and I go thank God I'm sober or this guy would have been toast you know and um, so yeah people will uh, I used to think I was even a better driver when drinking you know because you have all that false confidence when you're drinking well you kind of know you're getting behind the wheel why you had some to drink so you're yeah. gonna, you kind of want to be super alert and yeah. you think you are you super alert you think you are but yes. once you start to drink you can't do two or more things well <clears throat> at the same time so if you are when you're drinking I mean when you're driving there's a lot of things involved there's that you know, what's the speed limit here? Am I doing the speed limit here? Is did there, I miss a sign? Did I miss a sign? <laughs> oh, there's a red light up there. Oh, there's a pedestrian. Maybe yeah. there is, maybe there isn't. You know, uh, who's behind me? And then if a policeman gets behind you, 
uh, you're all of a sudden looking at the policeman, wondering what is the speed limit here that I'm traveling, looking yes. for that speed limit sign, trying to keep the car between the li- between the lines, uh, seeing how fast you're going, seeing what he's doing, and hopefully you catch whatever stop signs up there or stop lights up there, and something's going to give. You're going to start wiggling between those lines because how many people go directly straight at any given time anyway? Yeah. There's going to be some wiggling, and, and as you're trying to make all these things happen and things are given way because you've added alcohol to the mix, yeah. You know, you're eventually going to get get caught. And the other thing is, a lot of times you go to step on that brake, and and everything's happening just a few moments later than you thought it would. And if mm. you're on streets in Montana, it's pretty scary, especially in the winter time. Mm. Carrie, I know that it, obviously it's not just alcohol; it is also other uh, addictions that we see. And and you had the fortune, I. <laughs> I think it is because you were really passionate about it. You actually went to New Orleans uh, not too long ago, and and you you have a few pictures over here. I want to show these to Chuck because I think this is very interesting. Uh, some photographs of what the devastation is still like at this point. Mm-hmm. But you went down there to talk to the people who are really going through rough times because of their addictions. What can you tell us about it, please? Well, I was sent down there through SAMHSA, which is the uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Counselors. Um, and I was uh, sent down to help uh, counselors, and also I got to work with kids, elementary school kids. And um, <clears throat> first I was in a methadone clinic, which is kind of an interesting thing for for me because that's not necessarily the type of work that I do. And so I, I was able to help uh, work with counselors that... Um, They had a bunch of new counselors because the ones that they had 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 um, lost their homes and had to move away and stuff like that. So I got to work with uh, some people in that setting to look at uh, other issues like is this person drinking? Are they using other kinds of drugs and all that sort of stuff? But then I, uh, the wonderful part of it for me was when I got to work with elementary school kids. Mm. It was very, very powerful because so many of those kids had moved around so many times. Already, and, huh? yeah. yeah. And and we did this one exercise that was just wonderful. Our team leader came up with it, which was a tile, a square tile. And um, they would put the tile inside a placemat. Mm-hmm. And first they'd feel around the tile, and that represented their life before Katrina. Yeah. And then they picked up a hammer and they hit the tile. Mm. And then they lifted up the placemat and looked at what was there and labeled all those pieces. Oh, wow. And so the pieces were like old friends, new friends, old school, new school, church, parents, family, little brother, you know, um, different things that had happened to them. And then in the next part of that... that um, Game? Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. In the next session, in the next uh, group that we had with them, we had them uh, work to put back together that tile. Uh-huh. And they thought it was going to be easy putting that tile back together. And really? they went through frustration trying to find where all those pieces fit. Some of the pieces didn't fit anymore. And wow. uh, they were allowed to, if they wanted to, crush it up and fit it in, in between oh. if they wanted to or mm. just throw them out. Some kids chose, you know, those are pieces I'm just not going to get back anymore. Wow. And 
But they all left there with a feeling of, I'm going to get through this. Hmm. I'm going to get through this. And that was very exciting and powerful for me to be a part of that with these kids. We watched them cry and work and get frustrated and angry and, and, um, and get empowered through that particular situation so it was mm. it was really a powerful thing so these were children uh, who were left homeless and were they also you said men- mentioned methadone clinic so did they have parents who were addiction who had addictions or started addictions after Katrina uh, the, with the elementary school children no <clears throat> these were just as far as I know uh, occasionally I did hear about somebody who had an addictive parent or and there was one particular kid I was worried about and made sure I talked to a school administrator about them because their their mom would leave them at home and go drink and stuff. Yeah. So so there there was a few of those in there like in every population. Um what was your other question? I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> if these were kids that were left that were homeless or that they were indeed uh, children of parents that had certain addictions. Well, they were, um, a lot of times they were, they moved like to Texas. Yeah. Oh, and that's then they right. moved back, you know, with, with their family. Yes. And, or moved here and there. And there was one gal who, that had lost her, her grandmother. Yeah. And the family had lost track of the grandmother. And um, the grandmother had been airlifted, uh, I think, when she got to Texas to go get help, uh, to get some help because she had a stroke or a heart attack or something. And they didn't find out about where she was until six months later. Yeah. And we got a got to be there for that little girl because we had been working with her in a school the day of the funeral of her grandmother so it was really really powerful and her fat you know everybody in uh, New Orleans is so gracious and so wonderful and as one of those pictures shows they have also still got a sense of humor there's one house that was moved into the middle of the street by the flood and and spray painted on the side of the houses wicked witch of the west here (laughs) with with it an arrow pointing down at painted on feet. Yes. And so, you know, they have their sense of humor and they just are wonderful and delightful with everybody who is there to help. And, you know, they're, it's just a wonderful culture there. It is devastating, uh, obviously. And uh, you just hope that, uh, that this, this area of our country will recover. And it will obviously never be the same. Mm-hmm. It will be uh, wiser. It's the new normal. It's the new normal. It's the new normal. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing what you do, and uh, thanks for going over there mm-hmm. and helping out in New Orleans. Folks, uh, Kerry Erickson will be with us another hour. Uh, Chris Prentice, will get him on the phone uh, during the break. And we're going to talk about this book, The Alcoholism and Addiction Cure. And with Kerry, kind of as a co-host with me, we're going to talk about uh, some of the things. You, Kerry might throw a few questions at Chris about some of the things we do over here in the Gallatin County. Maybe he has some suggestions and fresh ideas for us. We will be right back. It's with great pleasure that I welcome our next guest talking about alcoholism and drug rehab. Um, his name is Chris Prentice, and Chris Prentice has written a, a wonderful book, also a wonderful book. It's called The Alcoholism and Addiction Cure. The Alcoholism and Addiction Cure, a holistic approach to total recovery, how to heal the underlying causes, how to end relapse, and how to end suffering. Uh, Chris Prentice is an author of inspiring writings. He is also the co-founder 
of Passages in Malibu, California, which is the world's most successful substance abuse treatment center. He founded it with his son, Pax, and he had uh, quite a few treatments, which we will discuss as we go on. Chris, thank you so much for being here early this morning. Well, thank you very much, and good morning to everyone in Bozeman, Montana, and <laughs> all the whereabouts. Well, thank you so much. Could you please tell us what, what was going on in your life? It is an inspiring story, uh, just to, just to uh, give our listeners a glimpse of what happened in your life, especially in dealing with your son. Yes, when Pax was uh, 15 years old, he began using uh, marijuana, as most young people do today, and uh, also some alcohol. And I did what I could to discourage him from that, but without any success. One day when he was 18 years old, he came home and he was crying, and he said, Dad, I'm hooked on heroin. I didn't know anything about heroin and its uh, devastating qualities. I said, no problem, Pax, don't worry about it. We'll get you off it in a heartbeat and you'll be fine. So I sat with him through the next 18 days of withdrawal symptoms. I had uh, medications from our local home doctor who gave us, you know, pain medication and sleep medication and anti-cramping medication, et cetera, to help him get through this wonderful, disastrous time. And at the end of 18 days, he was fine. I said, there, there you go. Good experience. That's over. Go on back to school. Have a good life. Yeah. Little did I know that that was the start of a six-year battle to save Pax's life. Wow. And it was terrible. I had him clean probably 40 or more times. Wow. every time he would relapse. And I took him to every... I had him in 90-day programs, 60-day programs, 30-day programs. I took him to doctors, every kind. I took him to psychologists, psychiatrists addiction specialists, drug and alcohol counselors, and they all told me the same thing. They said, addiction and alcoholism are diseases, and they're incurable. They told me the best you could do, the best you can hope for, is just to manage them. And of course, I knew nothing about it, and I reluctantly believed them. I didn't want to believe them, but you know, these guys were the experts, and I heard it from everyone and all the AA meetings I took him to and they convinced him that you know you're going to be an alcoholic and an addict for the rest of your life that once an alcoholic always an alcoholic and just it was this endless litany of bad news Wow! and so you even took him you even took him over oh excuse me go ahead no, go ahead, what? Well, you even took him up to a cabin and stayed with him yeah. up in a cabin away day, from everything. One day, in order to try and break the cycle of his addiction, I took him away with me to an isolated cabin in Big Sur, California. Yeah. And I kept him there for nine months. I stayed with him the whole time. He was absolutely clean for nine months. Wow. And then one day, I had to leave to come back to Los Angeles. And the night that I left, he got into my... Uh, liquor cabinet and drank some whiskey and then I didn't know anything about it and then I came back and I had to leave to go back to Los Angeles permanently and the first week back he was using heroin and cocaine again oh wow I mean it was just nothing that I could do I saw Pax come out of the hospital his jaw broken in two places his teeth wired shut teeth sticking in all directions he had robbed the dealers to get heroin he was so desperate wow his teeth wired shut, sifting food through his teeth, 
smoking heroin. Wow. And that's when I realized, that's when I found out that consequences do not stop addicts. Yeah. And so I continued my search, and I always asked Pax the same question. Why are you doing this? And he always gave me the same answer. He said, it's the high. It's the incredible high. He said he had never been able to experience anything in real life, in reality, that was as wonderful as this high that he got from heroin and cocaine. They call it a speedball. Yeah. And so this fight went on for six years. And finally, in desperation, I created a program that I believed would save his life. And it did. Huh. We found out, this is the best news for your listeners today, we found out how to cure alcoholism and addiction. Huh. And we have found that they are not diseases at all. That alcoholism and addiction, drugs and alcohol, do not even enter into the healing equation. They have nothing to do with it. Drugs and alcohol are what the people are using to cope with the underlying conditions that are the real causes. And in the alcoholism and addiction cure, your listeners can read the three-step holistic program that will absolutely show them how to completely cure addiction and alcoholism forever, effortlessly, painlessly, and with the best uh, far-reaching results in their lives, families restored, health restored, freedom from addiction, freedom from cravings, freedom from suffering. Yeah. That's what they can expect when they read The Alcoholism and Addiction Cure. And they can get it in any bookstore, their local neighborhood bookstore or online. Yeah. That's right, and uh, I want to let our customers know, of customers, our listeners know, folks, uh, we have the book at Montana Harvest Natural Foods at this point, and I also decided to make that the book of the week, and uh, so you can get it there for $13.75, 15% off the suggested retail price, and um, so it is def definitely a book to pick up, to go through, and it will give you some wonderful personal stories, uh, great testimonials from people who have worked with the program passages, uh, who have worked with Chris Prentice and his son Pax, and been inspired, and has, has changed their life, and not just their own life, which is obviously very, very important, but so many people, Chris, surrounding the people who are actually dealing with the addiction are suffering are actually i think you call them almost like addicted themselves because they're so close to these people they experience so much of what the actual person is dealing with is that correct yes you know in our search to find out what was the causes of alcoholism and addiction we found that there are only four causes of alcoholism and addiction uh -huh. and believe it or not alcohol and drugs are not one of them huh and we have been, we have healed hundreds and hundreds of people now who have come to passages in Malibu, and they have experienced complete freedom from drugs and alcohol. And every one of those people had one or, one or more of the four causes. Uh -huh. and I'll tell you what those are. Please. The first one, events of the past uh -huh. that they have not been able to deal with. Heartbreak childhood trauma, um, guilt complexes that 
people who have done things to others who they have, are suffering for, uh, sometimes uh, irreconcilable events. Yeah. Uh, we have had people who came to passages who were heavily addicted, who had felt that they had caused someone's death. Huh. Uh, we have had people come who have felt that uh, they have broken the hearts of someone else, and that person has been irretrievably hurt by that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the first cause, events of the past. Yes. And, you know, we in, included in that, we have many women, and men too, who have been raped. Huh. And they can't get past it. And they are filled with rage and anger and hurt and humiliation and shame. And oh. they have to, they, we teach them how to, how to live with that. Yes. We teach them that it, in some ways it has actually worked to their benefit. It strengthened them. And particularly with women, um, they have to learn so that when they are older and they have a family, if something like that happens to one of their family members, they'll know how to deal with it. Yeah. You know, if they can't deal with it, how can they possibly help their children? Yes. And the, <clears throat> the second cause is chemical imbalance. Mm -hmm. Everyone who is using drugs or alcohol obsessively has a chemical imbalance. And what they use the drugs and alcohol for, and incidentally, alcohol is just another drug. It's yes. ethanol. And it doesn't matter whether they put bubbles in it and call it beer or champagne, or whether they uh, call it Cabernet Sauvignon <laughs> or yes. Merlot, or, or whether they call it vodka. No matter what it is, everyone is selling ethanol. Yes. Everyone. Mm. And they put additives in it to make it taste differently. They put uh, coloration in it to make it look different. But bottom line, everyone is selling ethanol. And what ethanol does <clears throat> changes the way we feel. Uh -huh. It takes a stressful day, and it makes it easier to bear. It takes anxiety and lessens it. However, it comes with terrible consequences. You know, I know this is a bit of a digression from the four causes, but uh, <clears throat> do you know what cirrhosis of the liver is? Yes. It's a hardening of the liver. Uh -huh. And according to the Mayo Clinic, the liver is scarred from the alcohol, from the ethanol. And it's, bur it's actually literally burned. Mm. If our liver had pain-sensitive tissue, which it doesn't, no one would ever take their second drink because of the uh, writhing agony of the liver's pain when ethanol hits it. Uh. So, second cause, chemical imbalance. Everyone who's using drugs or alcohol has a chemical imbalance. And when people go to treatment centers around the world and they do not uh, address the chemical imbalance issue, those people will leave the treatment center with the same condition that they walked in the door with and they will immediately relapse because the chemical condition is still present. Can at I ask passages, you, pardon me? Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. At please. passages, when someone comes, the first thing we do, we take blood, we draw blood, we take urine, we send it into the laboratories for analysis. Sometimes we use saliva and test it for um, vitamins and minerals. Sometimes we take hair analysis and test it for heavy metals. And with the results of that, we can see what the chemical imbalance is. And, of course, 
if the if they have a lack of adrenaline, for instance, we know that their adrenal organ is not their adrenal gland is not functioning correctly, mm-hmm. or their <clears throat> or their thyroid is underactive. Yeah. Those are primary causes of people seeking drugs and alcohol, mm-hmm. chemical imbalance, and it's caused always by glandular malfunction uh-huh. every time. So we can find out what that is and correct it, and immediately they feel relief wow. because they're no longer chemically imbalanced. It's the chemicals that cause anxiety. It's the chemicals that cause depression. Mm-hmm. You know, many people go to their doctors and they receive antidepressants, anti-anxiety pills. That's the wrong way to treat those symptoms. They should find out what's causing it and yeah. treat that. Yeah. So let's get on. Chemical imbalance is the second one. The third one is events, uh, pardon me, current conditions that they can't cope with. A failing marriage, failing health, failing business, uh, things in their lives that they are not able to deal with. Loneliness. Some Mm -hmm. people are lonely and they drink to, you know, to make themselves feel okay. Current conditions that they can't cope with. The last one things that they believe that are not consistent with what's true. And chief amongst that, alcoholism is a disease, it's incurable, and you've got it. And the moment someone does that, the moment they buy into that misconception, guess what? They stop looking for the real reasons. Mm -hmm. And there are always real reasons. Alcoholism is not a reason. Neither are genetics. You know, you hear so much about Oh, my father was an alcoholic, and my mother was an alcoholic, and my grandparents. There are millions of people walking around in America whose parents and grandparents were, were alcoholic and, and addicted, addicted people, and they're not. Uh-huh. Genetics plays a role. It has a tendency. But unless one of the four causes are present, it does not manifest itself. Huh. You know, many people have a tendency, a genetic tendency, to be overweight. It does not mean that they have to be overweight. So we do not include genetics as one of the four causes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people say, oh, I have a a tendency to be, I have an addictive personality. Well, they may have an addictive personality, but unless one of the four causes are present, that addictive personality does not manifest itself as an addiction. Hmm. Now, uh, to come back to the uh, chemical imbalance, um, can it also be caused by diet, uh, like sugar, like Absolutely. alcohol? It's kind of a sugar. Absolutely, so it can be. By not you know, having enough proteins and fats in the diet, naturally the body starts craving sugar, and uh, that might start Absolutely. a craving for wine. Uh, all of you, those things, all of those things, can cause chemical imbalance. Uh, you know, people wake up in the morning, they feel a little sluggish, they reach for a coffee. Well, they start to beat their system up. You know, they start to flog themselves with coffee. Seems harmless, doesn't it? But try and stop. You'll find yourself jittery. You may have headaches. You may have nausea. Caffeine is a very addictive substance. Mm. And um, it, it causes a chemical imbalance because it injects caffeine into the system. Well, listen to this, yes. Jacobus. Everyone who puts anything in their system like that the body has to counteract it. So, because they get 
a surge of caffeine in their system, right? Body has yes. to send out a depressant to counteract it because the body will always attack any imbalance no matter where it comes from. Yes. So if you use sugar, guess what? Your body has to produce insulin in order to eat the sugar up. The problem is, and the way you get the highs and lows from sugar, the problem is that the body sends out a rush of, of insulin. <laughs> yes. And it not only eats up the sugar that you just ate, it also eats up your natural body sugar, which you use for energy. Mm. So you get this corresponding low. Yes. But at Passages, we have learned how to cure, absolutely cure, addiction and alcoholism. The people who graduate from the Passages program all report the same thing, mm. that it's easy, mm. that staying sober is just a natural part of life. One of the things I saw in your son's uh, story uh, where he talks about going to a group setting was not for him. What what he needed was that personal attention uh, to really have somebody who listens to him and, and, and goes with him and understands him and, and, and gives him the personal suggestions instead of sitting in a group where you uh, kind of could fall through the cracks. You know something? The reasons that people use drugs and alcohol are buried deep within their subconscious. And the chances that you're going to be able to access that and bear your soul in a group of strangers is highly unlikely. And the national relapse rate is in the high 90s. Wow. And at Passages, you know, we have turned that around. Yes. You know, we have an 84.4% success rate at passages. Mm. The national relapse rate is at, uh, is over 80%, and some drugs are in the high 90s. Now, when, passages, when you say relapse, turn that around. When you say relapse, about how much time are you talking about here? Sometimes it's the next day. Really? Sometimes it's the same day. There are many, many stories that people have told us when they have left a treatment center that before, on the way home, they stop at the, at the liquor store or they call their drug dealer, on the way home from the treatment center. Wow. And largely, that's due to what goes on at the treatment center, because they do not address the underlying causes. You know, their favorite method of treating alcoholism and addiction is to use scare tactics, huh. threats. And they tell them, if you don't stop using drugs and alcohol, you're going to lose your family, your home, your health, your credit, your car. You know, that doesn't... That does not stop addicts and alcoholics. I saw Pax, I didn't see this, but I, I know that Pax was taken to the desert after he robbed the dealers a second time. Yeah. They were going to kill him. They forced him to dig his own grave. They ripped his shirt off, laid the steel against his belly to rip him open as an example to the other uh, addicts who tried to steal from dealers. He talked his way out of it. Wow. The next day, he was using heroin. Huh. Consequences do not stop addicts or alcoholics. The only thing that permanently puts a stop to it, and effortlessly, is finding out the reason behind it. And you know something, Jacobus? Huh. Everyone says, oh, I'm drinking, and I don't know what it, why I do it, and I can't stop. And that's true. They don't know why they do it, and yes. they cannot stop. And the reason for it is because the underlying condition that is causing it is unknown to them. 
Yeah. They don't know why they're doing it. Or in some cases, they do know. Sometimes they say, well, you know, I lost my wife three years ago. And I haven't been able to recover from that. Well, we're going to take a quick break here, Chris. I appreciate you with us today. Folks, uh, Chris Prentice is with us on the phone. He wrote a phenomenal book called The Alcoholism and Addiction Cure, an holistic approach to total recovery. We're also talking about his, his clinic, uh, a treatment center. It's called Passages. It's located in Malibu, California. A lot of it is described in the book. Kerry Erickson is with us in the studio also. Stay tuned because we're going to be back for just another half hour. Be right back. Chris, the very interesting first half hour here, and uh, we obviously, we, we love to hear from you. What are some of the possible steps that you would recommend to people, or what do you use in your clinic? Right. Well, first of all, I want, I want to uh, thank you for that wonderful introduction to the book and to passages. Oh, thank you. And I also want people in Bozeman to know that um, I have a team that has helped me put this book together. And the uh, two essential people who were largely responsible for the success of the book throughout the world are Nigel Yorworth mm-hmm. and Patricia Spadaro, a lovely married couple who live right there. Yes. And um, they have been wonderful and so effective in helping me bring this book to the world because it's, the, it's one of the world's great problems. Yes. And it, there's hardly any family or any company that is not affected in some way by drugs or alcohol. The reason I wrote the Alcoholism and Addiction Cure book is because Pax and I do the intake calls at Passages. When people call in and they want to find out about the program, they talk to Pax or me. Yeah. Uh, not, not too lately, because I've been out on the road doing promotions all over the country for the book. Yes. But most of the people who call in cannot afford the Passages program. It's an expensive program. Yes. And so I wrote the book for them because the Alcoholism and Addiction Cure will show people exactly how to cure alcoholism and addiction right there where they live, in their own hometown. There's a few health practitioners that you need to have to help you do this. For instance, in the first half hour, you heard that one of the major causes is a chemical imbalance. Yes. As, and it's present in every single person who is abusing drugs or alcohol. And so that must be addressed. And the way you do that is you find yourself a medical doctor mm-hmm. and one who practices alternative medicine. That's mm-hmm. essential because you don't want somebody who's just going to hand you out more prescription drugs and say, here, take this and go home. You want someone who's going to assist you and doing the laboratory work and drawing your blood and sending it into the laboratory to find out where the chemical imbalance exists and then to correct it naturally. You want to use uh, natural medications uh, in the event that you know you have a chemical imbalance due to a, an adrenal problem. You know, you want your adrenal gland to be supported and you know the best place to get the support is right there in your store. Yeah, probably, yes. (laughs) You sell all the remedies that people need Uh in order to deal with this chemical imbalance in a natural, holistic manner. Yes. And they can do it right there in your store. Can you believe that? Yeah, I I can. (laughs) Yeah. And and so what they want to do, get the book. It will show you who to contact in your area, and then it will show you the exact steps to follow where you can completely cure 
addiction and alcoholism. Mm. I want to say something about, you know, in the, in the last 10 years, the big buzzwords have been in denial. Mm. You know, we all know people who are abusing drugs or alcohol, and they say, oh, I don't need help, or I can quit anytime I want. And we know they can, and they do need help, but they won't admit it. Yeah. Well, I want to, there's a little chapter in the book called Blowing the Whistle on Denial. Yes. And what it means is those people have secretly tried to quit many times and failed. And they know that they cannot quit. And so they tell people, oh, I don't need to quit. Or I can quit whenever I want. I prefer this. Yeah. And it's not true. And the way that you overcome that particular uh, stance is you go to the person, you buy the book, you go to the person, you say, here, I know you've tried to quit many times and you can't do it. Read this book. It will really help you. Yeah. And you know something? I'm getting calls from all over the world from people who are reading the book and who are finding out that they can do it. Yes. And they give it to their parents and they give it to their friends and they give it to their spouses. They say, here, please read this book. You're killing us. You're killing the family. You're ruining our lives. Please read this book. And then a few weeks later, I get a call, and they say, thank God somebody wrote this book. That's right. Because there are so many misconceptions. You know, the whole world is still treating addiction and alcoholism as if they're the problem. Yes. And Jacobus, they are not the problem. They don't have anything to do with it. It's as if you, it's as if you had an itch, mm. and you were scratching it all the time. Yes. Well, the whole world is treating scratchitis mm. instead of finding out what's causing the itch and dealing with that. Caller, thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Your name, how can we help you? This is Payne. Hey. I used to work with a guy named Melvin Payne, but you call me Dan Payne. For the first time in my life, I took some Tylenol, and then I got so bad this cluster headache, I went to the clinic, and they gave me stronger Tylenol, and I really went to the wall. But then one of these chiropractors, John Carp, said, probably signals coming from your liver that you toxified it. Uh-huh. Uh, that would be one question. What do you do to clean out your liver? And I know that I, I went through your book. One of the things I said, that's a lot of money. The Montanans were one of the poorest states in the nation. But I see you're not real soothed about coffee. If I'm going to pull back from coffee, is, are there any homespun ways that I can do that? Absolutely, I'll, I'll hang up. The, I'll hang up and listen. Thanks, Daniel. All right, Absolutely, bye-bye. there are. Yes, first of all, all the remedies that you need are sold in Jacobus's store. Every one of them. You don't need to go anything, you don't need to do anything exotic. Everything is there that you'll need to support yourself during those, for instance, when you withdraw from coffee. Yeah. And what you want to do is you just read the book and we'll show you exactly how to do it. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the liver cleanse. Mm-hmm. When I first was listening when Jacobus first came on the sh- on the show today he was telling us about his store selling liver cleanse That's colon right. cleanse uh-huh you know it's it's right there that's what you need to do because when you use Tylenol you actually poison your system specifically the liver specifically the liver yeah and the liver holds on to stuff that it doesn't want to run around in your body. Yes. And a liver cleanse is a wonderful thing, and a colon cleanse is a wonderful thing to do for yourself. It's like a spring cleaning. Yes. And because spring, March 20th is spring, the first day of spring. Should be tomorrow. That, 
That's a wonderful thing to treat your body to. Your eyes will sparkle. You'll hear better. You'll think more clearly. Mm. You want to definitely do a liver cleanse and a colon cleanse. Those are wonderful things to do. They're painless, yes. easy to do. Just take some uh, herbs in the morning that will stimulate your liver to clean itself. Mm -hmm. Great idea. Yeah, I agree. Yep. And now, so listen. Yes. Jacobus. Yes, sir. The thing that is most important for your listeners to hear is that alcoholism and addiction are not diseases. They are completely handleable, easily handleable. What one needs to do is to discover the cause, and there is always a cause. People are not using drugs and alcohol just to be doing it. No one wants to be a drunk. Mm -hmm. No one wants to be a junkie. Yeah, you're right. They are doing it because they cannot help themselves. They don't know how to do it. In reading The Alcoholism and Addiction Cure, yeah. they will find out exactly how to do it. And uh -huh. they can do it right there in their own hometown where they live. And the book is also available online. Any, any of the online bookstores, Amazon. But I would most prefer the people in your town to go to your store and get it because in your store they will also find all the remedies that they need in order to completely overcome this terrible addiction in their lives. It's very important that people understand the first step. And the first step is believe that a cure is possible. Hmm. And then the last step, we talked about steps one and two. The first step, believe that a cure is possible. The second step, find some of these health practitioners that I recommend in the book. And incidentally, please, when you go to your health practitioner, your medical doctor, whoever it is, one that practices alternative medicine, make certain that he or she reads the book. Yes. Because don't just walk in there thinking they know how to do it. Mm-hmm have them read the book even if you have to pay them to read the book <laughs> make sure he reads the book yes and then the last step is to make sure that they communicate with each other hmm. have your health practitioners communicate with each other so that they're all on the same page all aimed at the same goal which is discovering the reason for alcoholism and addiction All what right. lies behind it and the last thing that one must do and it has to do with chapter nine in the book is to develop a personal philosophy that will see you through the hard times like because setting a setting a master plan a, pardon me it's kind of setting a master plan for what yeah, you want to do the master plan uh -huh. because hard times come to us all yes you know We've all been raped and beaten and betrayed and cheated and lied to. And, you know, we've all had these terrible things happen to us. We've all had people take advantage of us, you know, and it's, it's part of the human condition. Yeah. And unless you have a personal philosophy that will sustain you through those hard times, sometimes they are so hard to bear that we turn to outside sources like drugs or alcohol to, to try and get through the day. Yes. That's all people are doing, Jacobus. Uh-huh. Uh, yep. Yes. They're, they're using drugs and alcohol to get through the day, to change the way they feel, to take an unbearable day and make it bearable. Yes. You know? And that's all they're doing. Yes. And they're harming themselves terribly. And not just and, themselves, but also people around them. Oh, yeah. It destroys families, pulls them apart. Yes. And, and they, it's to so totally unnecessary, and it's so easy to cure. You would be amazed. You know something? In passages, we have never had a heroin relapse in the 90-day program. Wow. Not one. The most difficult of all of the addictions 
to overcome. We have never had a heroin relapse in our 90-day program. And so there is hope, and not only hope, but a certainty that if they will follow the steps, that they will come out with a complete cure. As a matter of fact, we have trademarked with the federal government the term easy sobriety. And what it means is that once you've attained the cure in the right way, by discovering the underlying conditions that are causing it, sobriety is natural, it's easy, it's just a way of life. You don't have to ever use drugs or alcohol again. And I want to be sure that your listening audience understands one thing. And it's very important. Once you've attained this cure, it does not mean that you can go back and use drugs or alcohol again. Once it's over, it must be over for good in all time. You cannot ever do it. It, That means not one sip of wine, not one toot of cocaine, not one puff of marijuana, nothing. Once it's over, it must be over because you have demonstrated to yourself that you can become addicted by drugs. And, Mm. of course, alcohol is just a drug. It's ethanol. Yes. So once it's over, it must be over for good in all time. That's a good point. Caller, good morning. You're on the air with Chris Francis. What is your name, please? Good morning. My name is Sean. Hello, John. Sean, you got a fascinating. Sean. That's right. You got a fascinating show here this morning. Oh, thank you. Uh, I'd like to ask about the recidivism rate. I th- did you say for standard treatment it was in the neighborhood of like ninety percent return to their yes, condition? Yes, sir. Yeah, the national relapse rate is over ninety percent. And you said your program was eighty-four point four percent. And I want to make you aware successful. of something. That's from the first person who walked in the door of passages four and a half years ago. We so have an 84.4% success rate. And incidentally, that person is still clean and sober four and a half years Your period is later. four years, you said? Pardon me? You, you said the period you're, you're working with was four years? Four and a half years, yes. We'll and, be five years old in August. I'm curious about uh, the, when you give the statistics on the standard treatment, what period are you talking about there? These are statistics that are put out by the national government, by the federal government. But they I mean, have, they have a, a division which, which deals with all of the treatment centers in the United States, and we all report to them. And they have developed these statistics, and they are the ones who say that they give us exact numbers. You know, uh-huh. um, alcohol and, and uh, heroin are uh, 86%. Recidivism, right? Over over what period, though? Are you talking like four years? Are you talking twenty it's, years? It's just period. It doesn't say first year, second year, third year. What they give us are, I w- I believe it's over a one year period. Okay, so you're, you're talking about a one year period. I apologize, I'm not certain of that, but I believe uh-huh. it's over a one year period because well, we report to them every year. That's very interesting. I know that I, I think I've heard those statistics about standard treatment before. But I was always curious as to what the period was. Do these folks uh, relapse? You were talking about when they walk out of the treatment center, they relapse. Sure. And your and program has been going four years, you said? Four and a half years. That's Listen, pretty Sean, good. I just yeah. had a call from a mom the other day, uh-huh. and her son had come back from four months in a treatment center in Florida, a group meeting treatment center, and he relapsed the first day. And wow. she called me in tears, and she said, Mr. Prentice, she said, I just don't know what to do. She said, I asked my son how it came about, and he told me that when he was leaving the treatment center, they told him he was going to relapse three times. And he told me, he said, well, Mom, this is just the first time. 
Jeez. Can you imagine? That's fascinating. That's all I had, to Coach. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Sean. Bye-bye. one One of the terrible slogans that came out of the AA program is relapse is part of recovery. And the reason they did that was because the relapse, which is in the high 90s, is so high that they had to make it seem like it was okay. But it's not okay. Relapse is a return to dependency. It's like saying that divorce is part of marriage or, or bankruptcy is part of business. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. That's part of a return to dependency. Yes. When people relapse, they have just succumbed to their inclination again. And it just means one thing. It just means that the underlying condition has not been dealt with. Hmm. And, and those are the things that we talked about earlier, the four major causes, uh, the events of the past that they have not been able to deal with. Number two is chemical imbalance. Uh, alcohol is an ethanol, no matter how you swing it. It changes the way we feel, and it causes glandular malfunction. Number three, current conditions that we cannot cope with. And four, uh, things that we cannot deal with as being true. And uh, um, Actually... It's things that we believe that are not based on what's true. Okay. You know, I had a girl who came to me who, at Passages, and her, her parents told me it was, it was unfortunate she hasn't been able to deal with the fact that she, she wasn't uh, a beautiful girl. Well, I couldn't believe it. When she got there, I looked at this girl. She was beautiful, but she didn't think she was beautiful. Before she left Passages, she had found out that she was and she, she handles herself differently. She stood differently. She combed her hair differently. She had learned the use of makeup. And when, you know, when her mother walked in the door of Patches, her jaw actually dropped. Her mouth fell open when she saw her daughter. She didn't, oh, so couldn't believe it was the same girl. Yeah. Wow. She just believed that she was, she was ugly, and she wasn't. It was a belief that was not based yeah. on something that was true. Well, it absolutely. Was, it was a falsity. And you know where it came from? Media. Her parents. Oh, the parents, really? The parents. In the, her mother told her one day when she was young, she said, well, you're going to have to learn to get along on your brains. You're never going to make it on your looks. Wow. And, and her father, when she was nine years old, she said, well, honey, don't be concerned that you're not as pretty as the other girls in class. Daddy still loves you. Hmm. And those things stuck in her mind and caused her to have this terrible... Um, much belief in her mind that she was not pretty. Yes. And she was. She was lovely. Mm. And the last week that she was at Passages, what we did mostly was get her past being angry at her parents for what they had done to her. No, but she did. She's, she's uh, over three years sober now. Wow. And, you know, we get calls from all the from our graduated clients. They call us, they write to us, they tell us of the wonderful lives they have. They're marrying, they're having children, they're starting new businesses, they're getting on with their old businesses, and they all tell us how wonderful life is sober. Wow. That is, uh, that is very fantastic. I really appreciate you sharing all that with us. Uh, folks, sadly enough, we've come to the end of the hour already with Chris Prentice. I highly recommend you check out the book. It is called The Alcoholism and Addiction Cure, and Holistic Approach to Total Recovery. Read the wonderful stories. Read the history, why it was started, his personal story, and the possibilities that you have to overcome addictions. And uh, Chris, all the best to you. All the, first of all, let me give, you the, let me give people the telephone number. It's 888-777-8525. 
and it is at passagesmalibu.com. Chris Francis, thank you so much for being here. And thank you, and good luck to you and to all of your listeners. Remember, you are not alcoholics. You are not addicts. Thank you so much.